I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Charles Ornstein. Charles Ornstein is a senior reporter at ProPublica. Previously, he spent several years reporting for the Los Angeles Times. He was a lead reporter on a series of articles titled The Troubles at King Drew Hospital that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service. Mr. Ornstein is vice president of the Association of Healthcare Journalists and a former uh, Kaiser Family Foundation media fellow. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Charles Ornstein. Thank, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be here, and I know we're, we're headed for a spirited discussion, so I'm really uh, excited about that. Um, this, I wanted to start off with a little bit of background and uh, my own sort of take on this, because this morning my wife called me and said, you really need to get a flu shot today. And um, she had been trying to get a flu shot in New Jersey, where we live, and had called around to our doctor's office, and they didn't have any, and she had called a couple drugstores, and they didn't have any, and so she said, you're going to have a problem getting a flu shot here, so you should get a flu shot, you know, in California. And so I said, well, I'm moderating this panel tonight. Why don't I go to a retail clinic and just check it out? And I did. I went to a retail clinic, and uh, I'm, I'll be curious during the questions to see how many of you have been to one, um, but I went in, and there was a computer there where I typed in my name, and I typed in some information, my address, my email address, and entered the queue, and there was nobody waiting. I went in, I got my flu shot, I was out of there within five minutes, and it was a really quick encounter. And um, it showed me sort of the way that the structures are set up, how small they are, the way they operate. There's no receptionist there, there's, there's no paper going back and forth, you're doing everything sort of electronically. But it, it opened my eyes as to um, the way these clinics operate and what, we're, what it is we're talking about today. And one of the things in talking to Mary Kate a little while ago was that, you know, four years ago in 2005, um, we were talking about 17 retail clinics in the United States. And today, estimates suggest that there's anywhere from 1,100 to as many as 1,500 clinics, and that California has somewhere between 60 and 80 of them. And I think, I wish I could give you a more precise number. I think it's how you count them and how you look at them, and that's where you get a little bit of the difference in numbers. Um, LA County, you know, actually does not have many clinics compared to other large areas in the country, and that'll be one of the things we'll be talking about tonight, is why California does not have as many clinics. So I want to kick off the discussion uh, by asking Mary-Kate Scott to give a bit of an introduction about the topic and about how she got into this. And to introduce you, Mary-Kate, you're the founder and CEO of Scott & Company. And the way you got into looking at this was that the California Healthcare Foundation uh, asked you to write reports on, on retail health clinics. And you've done two of them. One, healthcare in the express lane, uh, retail clinics go mainstream. And the second is healthcare in the express lane, the emergence of retail clinics. I think I gave them in the reverse order. Um, she does consulting for both nonprofits as well as um, hospitals, healthcare systems, uh, medical device companies, biotech companies, and she's as well. She teaches the business of healthcare and healthcare consulting at USC's Marshall School of Business. So why don't I kick it off to you to give us a little bit of an introduction on the topic? Thanks, Charlie. So we all agree and don't need, I think, any statistics on. The cost problem that we have in healthcare. It's a giant cost, it has giant growth, and I think we agree. The other conundrum with the cost problem that we have is that the more we spend, the less we get. So in fact, if you look at where you spend more money, you actually have worse health outcomes. And so, and you, you look at the public health by spending more, and you haven't got the results. So what this really means is we can't spend our way out of this problem. We can't ration our way out of the problem. We actually have to challenge ourselves to think about two things. So we have to think about what kind of healthcare we need 
And then more importantly, I think, in today's topic is how we deliver healthcare. And it's, it's uncomfortable, I think, for mainstream healthcare providers to really be challenged on how they deliver healthcare. And it may not always be in their interests. But retail clinics are one of the ways we've thought about delivering healthcare differently. And we thought about it by changing several things. Change the location, change the provider, and use technology. And, and essentially, that's what retail clinics have done. They've said, we can move things, and things have already started to shift, right? They shifted from multi-day hospitals to you know, in doctor in-clinics to doctor's offices, right down to retail clinics, even at home. So we've seen that shift in location. We've seen the shift by using technology. We've seen the shift in provider, right? You know, highly experienced specialist physician, right down to primary care practice, nurse practitioner, and doctor mom. So retail clinics said, what if we took out some of the aspects of healthcare, like Southwest did, well, we're not gonna give you meals, we're not gonna do this, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna strip all that out, and we're gonna offer you a simple set of conditions. And there's about 40 conditions that are offered. We're gonna put a clinic in your grocery store, drugstore, or your mass merchandise, like a Target or a Walmart. And by doing that, we can bring the cost right down. And Charlie, you talked about the technology. They all have electronic medical records. They have electronic protocols. So they see you for one condition in 15 minutes, and they work 12 hours a day, eight to eight, in your local neighborhood. And if there's a short wait, you can multitask. So that's the gist. They're not trying to be a medical home. They're definitely not primary care, nor do they want to be. And what they're trying to do is to say, for a simple set of conditions, why don't you come here and we can do what we hope is a better job of that. So that's, that's how they came to be, and that's what they're really promising. Okay, um, next I'd like to turn to um, Cynthia Graff to give us a bit of an overview about um, the way you run a retail clinic. And Cynthia is president and CEO of Lindora Inc., which is the largest multi-site medical weight loss medical control system in the United States. And you've been working with Lindora since 1988. You're an author of uh, Lean for Life. And uh, you have, interestingly, a law degree from York University in Toronto. And um, you have eight retail clinics, as I understand it, that are based in Rite Aid, but they're paired with your um, weight control clinic. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this and, and also what you're seeing right now with the flu season sort of creeping up on us? Uh, how is that affecting the clinic operations? <laughs> Okay, a little history on Lindora. Uh, we're a, a specialty medical practice specializing in treatment of obesity, and we have a cognitive behavioral program delivered in 10-week modules designed for a 10% weight loss. It was started by a family doc 38 years ago who um, was frustrated because his patients kept coming back every year and they were heavier and he would tell them here take this menu plan eat less and they would come back heavier and so then his mom died of obesity complicated cardiovascular disease so he was on a quest to see how to get a better result for patients and at that time this was the early 70s this type of medicine was not a reimbursable um, form of medical practice. And so it was incumbent upon him to actually get a good result because people were paying for it out of their pocket. The other thing he realized 
was because people were paying for it themselves, it, we had to develop a good experience because if patients didn't like the experience, they wouldn't keep coming in and the practice would close. So we realized we were actually in retail medicine years before it became called retail medicine, meaning it was patient-centric. And so, you know, we expanded hours, we expanded into locations that were easy for access, and like storefronts, unheard of for a medical practice, and that was in the early 90s. Um, again, expanded hours, had walk-in, no appointments, because we wanted to make it convenient. So then, when we started reading in, you know, about five or six years ago, about the clinics opening in um, pharmacies, I was intrigued because it was a concept of getting closer to patients, you know, and actually having access to um, even more people. Because we found over the years that if we lowered barriers to access, whether they be con any convenient location or hours or cost, we would have greater access. And the more access we had, the more our patients could come in, the better our outcomes. And so the whole, I mean, the, the idea of locating inside pharmacies or a grocery store seemed really interesting. So we started talking with Rite Aid and um, we opened our first clinic three years ago and then we now have eight clinics. And we started with our weight control programs because our providers were already trained in school to add, I mean, to treat the, as Mary Kate said, the limited number of acute care, cough and colds and that sort of thing. Um, we also provide those services. Um, let's see, some lessons learned or things that we've been experiencing. Um, our clinics in Los Angeles are actually different than the ones in Orange County and San Diego. In Los Angeles, we're seeing a lot of people who are visitors hmm. to the area. So they are, um, they tell me that they used to have to go to an emergency room um, and I've gotten nice letters from Israel and Italy from people who said, you know, we flew over, my daughter was sick, and instead of spending a whole week, you know, with a sick child, we got into your clinic and within 30 minutes we were on our way. And it was delightful. In um, our clinics, we don't take insurance. And so the people who access our um, retail clinics are those without insurance, so like young people or the uninsured, I mean, who can't afford it and they don't want to pay the price of an urgent care visit or an emergency room visit. 
Um, and we're seeing, this is, this is, I hadn't expected it, a lot of mothers who volunteer, or parents who volunteer in schools, and they're required to have TB screening. Hmm. So they come to the clinics because it's convenient and, um, and vaccinations. So right now we're sort of inundated with people seeking flu vaccine. Okay. Um, next, I want to turn to Dr. Dev Gnanadev, who is medical director and chairman of the surgery department at Arrowhead Regional Medical Center, which is the public hospital in San Bernardino County. Dr. Gnanadev is a vascular surgeon, and he just completed his term as president of the California Medical Association. And I bet it's a huge relief to get that uh, off your plate. <laughs> uh, he was telling me yesterday that he's made five trips to Washington, D.C. this year alone um, to talk about health care reform. And just as a little bit of background about your hospital, uh, we were talking about 38% of the patients have no insurance. 55% are reliant on either Medi-Cal, which is the Medicaid program, or Medicaid managed care. 10% are reliant on Medicare, which leaves just about 7% being covered by private health insurance. So tell us where doctors think about you know, retail clinics and, and the role that they play in the system. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, the simple answer to are the retail clinics going to end the doctor's office, the answer is no. I, I, I can stop there, but <laughs> <laughs> can they cause havoc to primary care doctors? Maybe, and probably yes. Do they add a lot of value to uninsured and underinsured, especially in California, that's Medi-Cal? My simple answer is no, in spite of hearing about uninsured coming there, because I'm talking about poor uninsured, not uninsured who can afford $60 to pay for the retail clinic. Um, do the retail clinics look the same what they look today in the future? No. Do they look what they looked yesterday? No. It's a changing market. So what retail clinics are, it's a niche market. They, they, they basically provide episodic care, you got cold or uh, flu shot or sore throat. They provide episodic care. And I'm sure they provide decent care for that. I don't have any doubt about that, the, the, the care for those conditions. But what, as a doctor who worked 29 years at a public hospital, was pretty passionate about health reform and pretty, pretty passionate about getting a primary care doc for every resident of the United States, do they really take something away? Probably, they will, they will, they will take away uh, some of the value of providing comprehensive care by just providing episodic care. So that's why I, I don't, uh, I'm not a very big fan of retail clinics. If they look like a doctor's office, like Cynthia here is saying that in a place, it's just a place. But if they function as a doctor's office with a doctor or a nurse practitioner, I have no problem. My issue is drugstores owning retail clinics, whether it is CVS or Walgreens owning it. It just worries me. Why should the drugstores be interested in owning retail clinics? There are multiple reasons. They want more traffic. Maybe they want more prescriptions. Maybe they want more, more profit. Uh, just, just taking healthcare to that level is very, very worrisome. Already we got this for-profit insurance companies controlling healthcare which 
the cost is increasing, the quality is not improving. So add the another, uh, another layer into this with the drugstores or pharmaceutical companies, which, which I don't think it will add a lot of value to this comprehensive health, uh, health of a person, what we're talking about. CVS, which is the largest operator of um, retail clinics, uh, which is called Minute Clinic, and they have many locations in, in, in this region, um, paid $156 million to purchase um, Minute Clinic some years ago. They obviously expected to get something out of it. So, Mary-Kate, what about um, what Dr. Gnanov said about, you know, with the interests of the people that may own the clinics? Well, about 70% of clinics are owned by corporate America. And let's be clear, this is not just like business. This is CVS, Walgreens, and Kroger. About 25% of clinics are owned by hospitals, healthcare systems, and about 5% are independent. Um, and the reason why the retailers are very interested is they're interested in the prescriptions, they're interested in store traffic, they're interested in remaining relevant to people's health and wellness. Look, if you're a drugstore, you are struggling to be relevant. Anything you can buy in a drugstore, nearly anything, you can buy somewhere else. And drugstores are somewhat convenient, but there's a lot of other places. The Costco's, Walmart's, Target's, all of the, here in Los Angeles, the Vons, the Pavilions, the Safeways, all of that is competing for that same product, that same pharmaceutical. And so what they're trying to do is give you one more reason to come into their store. You go to the grocery store, on average, 2.8. Okay, I, I pull that up. You go to the drugstore about 0.8 times a week, and I, I pull that down. So, you know, they're pretty clear. It's about prescriptions, OTC, and it's really about being relevant. Um, I think it's a, a fair concern. Um, I'm not worried about a nurse practitioner over-prescribing. I'm not. First of all, I, I trust the licensure, I trust the nurse practitioner, and her prescribing, prescribing authority is tight. Um, it is an interesting complaint about retail clinics. The consumer says, my number one complaint is you did not give me the antibiotic. You know, you can kind of cajole a doctor, can't you? You can. I mean, I know you don't think, but you can. But a nurse practitioner has got a really tight authority, and she, will, she cannot be pushed. That's her license. Um, early data show that there's less prescribing. So, you know, I don't think they're going to move the needle on this, but that's what the retailers are trying to do. Healthcare systems are very different, have very different goals. They're, they're looking to keep patients in network. They're looking to find lower cost delivery mechanisms. They're looking at to be in the community where the people are. So there's very different motivations for different clinics. And, and the third group, by the way, is the small group. By the way, 100% used to be little tiny businesses and they were built, well, built to exit. They were built to be sold and many were sold. And 5% are still out there and they're hoping to be sold. But there's getting to be fewer and fewer sellers and fewer and fewer buyers. So, so doctor, but, I mean, what about this? That you know, if that the nurse practitioners are you know going to follow what it is, they're they're you know they're they're given sort of a set of instructions and they're going to follow it, and you're not going to be able to easily get drugs or even as easily if you go to your doctor's office. I I, I don't have any issue with what she said about the nurse practitioners thinking about profit for the drugstores. But what worries me is just drugstores owning your health care smells. When something smells, usually you got to try to see where, where the smell is coming from. It could be multiple places. So that's what my biggest worry is. Carpet America, I mean, this is a Republican talking here. Carpet America only looks at profit. That's about it. Nothing else. So why are you taking your personal health into corporate America 
for their profit rather than as if we don't have enough problems already with the for-profit health insurance industry. So we got enough problems, we're adding another layer. What we want is every resident having a primary care doc, basically coordinating that care, and we can get there. And this doesn't add much value, it just takes a little chunk away. So Cynthia, I mean, why, why, sh why shouldn't we just tell the patients who are coming in for the acute episodic care to the clinics to go to their doctors? Well, they would have gone to their doctor if that had been their choice. And so I wonder, do you have, I mean, an issue with like patient-centric um, choices? You know, the, yeah, making it something that's affordable and accessible I mean, the, it, it's, I'd like to talk oh. about the corporate part of it. Actually, in just thinking about, I hadn't thought about this before, but the, maybe we can learn from them. You know, Mary-Kate, you said that they wanted to be relevant to their consumer, which is really saying that they think that healthcare is really important and relevant. And um, so... Put making it so that the patient, that it's convenient for them and affordable. That's what convenient care clinics are all about. It's access, affordability, as well as quality. And the quality, as Mary-Kate said, everything is with an electronic medical record with protocols that are very strict. And so, so, doctor, I mean, is it just too difficult to get into your doctor's office? It is right now. I, I'm sure it's... it's pretty difficult, but doctor's office is also looking at the same thing, that is the consumer-oriented care. Many offices are going to the place where same day you can go, right. you can walk in. I mean, the doctors are still not stuck somewhere in 18th century, uh, even though some people think we are. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you have to, I, I have no problem with providing convenient care. The issue is if you take Take uninsured, okay? The average cost, I think, in California is about $60 for the, for the retail clinic. Tell me, l let me tell you, the 20 to 25% Medi-Cal patients in California, the average reimbursed from, uh, from Medicaid, which is Medi-Cal in California, is $24 for an office visit to your doctor. So we won't be adding much value to that population. And if you're poor uninsured who can barely afford food, can't be able to dish out 60 bucks to go to that clinic. So you're, basically we are catering to a small segment of population, or maybe uh, not a small segment, a segment of population who can afford. And what it does is it basically makes it most of the healthcare now, the way current system is, it's cost shifting. That is, insured and aff people who can afford and insured basically subsidize the uninsured and underinsured. So if you take that little chunk away, it makes the whole system really uh, very worrisome rather than really add a lot of value. Joey, wait, wait, wait. Please yeah. let's get some facts. So 62% of people who go to retail clinics have insurance and have a physician. Have. But they report that do not have a physician relationship. Insurance is not access. Insurance does not mean you have a primary care doctor. I cannot believe, I mean, doesn't anyone, 
It sounds like nirvana. Everyone having a primary care doctor, having a medical home, being followed. I mean, we all want this. There are simply just not that many primary care doctors out there. And you know, consumers are getting really thoughtful and smart. They're starting to say, look, when I've got something serious and important, I want to have a physician conversation, I will go and I will find a doctor. When I've got something simple, when you need a flu shot, when you've got sinusitis, you know, you might choose something different. So but the 38% who are yeah. uninsured, 38%, and that's a national number, are uninsured. Now, you say that the safety net population can't afford $60. I tell you what they truly cannot afford. They cannot afford to wait. The cost of waiting is exorbitant. Hey, I, I wonder, though, miss, you know, miss a day yeah. of work in waiting? Miss one day of work. Anybody here take 20% of your pay away and when you're living on a very fine line, on a tight salary, 20, the cost of waiting is extremely high. We find that the uninsured are actually going to these clinics as opposed to free care because the cost of waiting is so high. So in some of those clinics, it's a niche. That's absolutely right. It's affluent soccer moms looking for super convenience. But other clinics do different things. So. I want to, you know, put a bit of context in this because California is not seeing the same level of clinics that you're seeing in some other states that are smaller than California is. And so what is it about California that we are not seeing as many of these here? I mean, what, what's different? What's unique about California? Okay, well, it's a very high cost state to do business in. The cost of a nurse practitioner is very high. And we have a shortage of nurse practitioners. Um, we have corporate practice of medicine, which makes it more complex. Explain what that is. So essentially, it means that a physician must own a healthcare facility. Um, and that's, that's our corporate practice of medicine. So it's about who can own the facility. And, um, and most other states don't have that kind of restriction. So that, that's an important restriction in California. But, but I think actually it's less about that. It'd be a controversial thing to say. I think it's that we're a very high cost state. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, this is a tight economic model. There's not a lot of room and a lot of margin and, and I think that that's a big driver. Now, we were supposed to have a fourth panelist who's ill, um, Kathy Bellingsley from the State Health Department, Public Health Department, who oversees licensing and certification. And one of the things that she and I had a conversation about before the event was that while clinics need a business license and certainly need um, any sort of occupancy things, they have to, their um, providers have to have healthcare licenses, there is no specific um, facility inspection or regulations that are coming from the state public health department. Doctor, do you think there should be? Uh, let me just take on the carpet bar. Uh, basically what it says that outpatient health care provided has to be under control of physician. That's what California's carpet bar is. Uh, usually for retail clinics, I really doubt that's a major issue. I think she was, she's right. The, uh, the reason why California probably will have a difficult time is the mix of population is different. Uh, California has one of the highest uninsured in the country, especially if you take Los Angeles Basin. Uh, forget about some rural areas. I'm talking about the populated areas. And this model hasn't shown that it will be very beneficial when they're poor uninsured. Number two, nurse practitioners actually in California are as expensive as pediatricians. They're both about same salary. So that's, that's why it doesn't really give that, that margin for them. So these are the, these are the reasons. As far as the having regulations, uh, I n never, ever push for any more regulation from the government. <laughs> Take it for granted. <laughs> that's, that's not even an issue. If, health, if banking was as regulated as healthcare, we wouldn't be in this trouble. 
So no ifs and no buts. So healthcare is highly regulated. <laughs> we don't need to look for uh, uh, some more regulation. And, and w one last thing, all the retail clinics are not same. As I said before uh, in my opening statements, they're changing models. Uh, Cynthia, they, their model is that they're basically owned and operated by physicians, physicians and nurse practitioners, nurse practitioners reporting to the physicians. So when I look at that is, you have a structure, if you need something more, you got somebody behind you. And if they also can have from there, further up to the specialist, some kind of contract with them where a patient needs help, rather than telling that, yeah, go to your county hospital or go see your doctor if you have insurance. Just have a structure where they can be referred. If so they have that pattern, then it's, it becomes just a site of practice rather than a retail clinic. The, the, see, there are different models. There is one model owned and operated by drugstores. There is another model owned and operated by the health systems. There is another model owned and operated by physicians and the groups. So they're not all the same. Cynthia, I'm curious, you know, if you have a patient that will go into one of these clinics, say, with an ear infection, and your nurse practitioner will um, determine it's an ear infection, prescribe um, something for it, and the patient comes back a week later with an ear infection, uh, and, or a week later with an ear infection, will, will they catch that? Will they encourage them to see a doctor? I mean, are they looking for this sort of thing yes. in addition to just the one time when they come in each episode? Is this different episode? It is episodic care, but you know what? Yes, they start talking to the patient. If it's not the same practitioner who saw them before, you know, mm -hmm. um, they talk to them. The patient's going to say, you know, I was here a week ago, and then the conversation will happen. Maybe you need to go to see, do you have a physician? What you if know, they don't? If they don't, well, we have lists of, of physicians that we can refer to. Um, and many um, don't have a primary care physician, even those, as you said, Mary-Kate, with insurance. Um, we've actually even walked patients over to an urgent care because they were experiencing chest pains. You know, so... What would that patient have done if they hadn't had access to um, our clinic? You know? so, so I don't know the answer to this, um, but if, if a patient comes to the clinic, do you provide them with their medical record when they leave? So if they do go to their doctor, they bring yes. it with them? So you yes. give them a copy of it? We give them a copy. And if they want us to, if their physician has uh, access electronically, we can send it electronically or fax it to them. We talked about this a little bit um, before we started here. You also um, operate your weight loss um, part of the weight control program in Rite Aids in Northern California where Sutter runs those clinics. And uh, Sutter's a major healthcare chain and hospital uh, chain in Northern California. Explain how that works and the connection that they have, the Sutter to the Sutter system, how that, if you know, or Mary-Kate, one of... Well, actually, we've licensed our, our protocols and, and program uh, to Sutter. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're, they're the providers. And so, Mary-Kate, what does it look like when a hospital system runs the retail clinics? And how does that, you know, is, is that seem like it's part of the hospital system? How does that look? And they're very different. So let's talk about Sutter. So Sutter is a for-profit chain, um, high-tech, innovative, dare I say expensive, nevertheless. Uh, their whole concept is let's keep people in network, 
keep all their patients in network, give you a mini Sutter experience. And so they have a closed door design. So when you walk into that minute clinic, you actually know that you're inside their Sutter Express Care. And it's high tech and it's got all of their sort of look and feel and branding and all the technology. And their whole position is we've got one record continuity of care. And so for them, these are almost very fancy billboards. I mean, they certainly see, you know, 15 to 20 patients, certainly in the winter, a lot less in the summer. So are they making a lot of money? Not really. What they're really trying to do is be present in the community. But, you know, I was just talking to a hospital um, yesterday, a community-based hospital, 60 beds, Olmstead, and they're up against Mayo Clinic. By the way, Mayo has a, a retail clinic. And Olmstead is really about... Um, extending their primary care practice out in the community. So they use it to bring people in to actually feed their primary care practice. And they have, um, they're not-for-profit, they're a small hospital, and their whole mission is to actually get people a primary care um, physician. I was on the phone with someone who's a FQHC, the Federally Qualified Healthcare Center, and this is someone um, actually in Maine, and they were looking at putting a clinic in Walmart, and they said, that's where our patients are. We want them to get doctors. It's the best way to get them into our clinic. And besides, if they don't need to be in our clinic, that's good. We'll treat them there. But now we know that they can get a medical home and we can too. So very different goals, very different ideas behind healthcare systems of what they're doing. So doctor, I'm sure people are wondering, you know, why doesn't Arrowhead just open up a clinic? And, and it's probably cheaper than having your patients come to the ER and wait 12, you know, wait four hours, three hours, two hours, even one hour to be seen. Why not do that? Yeah, it's actually 30 minutes, but... Uh, 30 minutes? Well, that's, that's, uh, I no, bet I'll people you, in the Los no, Angeles no, County actually, Public the, Health System no, would want that. No, this is important because I want to... We, we created an innovative triage system in the emergency room. Arrowhead Regional Medical Center, a county hospital for County of San Bernardino, is the second busiest ER emergency room in the state of California after LA County, USC. It sees 400 patients per day. Uh, so you can do it. You can take a county hospital, create an innovative system where you can cut down the wait time to half an hour from several hours. But the reason these patients do not belong in the emergency room, it's expensive. It's a waste of resources. They should be taken care of in a completely different area. As I said, I don't have a problem if it is just another site of an integrated system are just another site of your doctor's office. There is, that is, the, all the help you need afterwards, if you need, is there. But just to be there, won't buy a drugstore, so I have a huge problem, and I, I, I know I keep repeating that one, but it is a problem for me. So the reason why Arrowhead Regional can't open clinic in Walmart is because Arrowhead Regional Medical Center is licensed by Department of Public Health. Even if we put a clinic in Walmart, it has to follow all those licensing requirements, which no small retail clinic can follow. So that's why you, we can't put what, what hospital can do is, though, if there is a nonprofit entity or a community of QHC kind of uh, clinic, we work with a lot of QHCs, we can give them the support structure behind for them to work with us for the other needs of the patients, uh, cancer, uh, uh, any, any, any GI problem, anything else in medicine, hypertension, stroke, anything else where you need a comprehensive care, you, we can provide that, but we can't put a clinic there. So Mary-Kate, I'm, I'm you know, curious, there was an article last month in the Wall Street Journal that talked about retail health clinics trying to move toward uh, treating more complex illnesses, mm -hmm. whether it's asthma or osteoporosis. And when we were talking before, you had talked about um, you could, some of them may offer Botox. And, you know, so w 
Is that where we're going? I mean, are we going beyond the ear infection, beyond the flu shot, toward, you know, treating more complex conditions and having protocols for childhood asthma or working toward um, offering, you know, things that we may not be talking about in the context of this conversation? Sure. I mean, the retail clinic started with acute episodic care. And in part, they started that way because the consumer really understood that. And so, you know, that was about five years ago. And what they've slowly done is tried to say, what does else the consumer want to do here? The brand promise is convenient care by a healthcare professional. You can get lots of convenient care, but you don't need the healthcare professional. Right? We all buy OTC products. And, and by the way, we're all getting smarter. Did you know that 700 prescriptions are now available OTC? So that's a great example of a shift in provider from a physician to Dr. Mom. We're much smarter. We can now self-prescribe through the OTC. So what clinics are starting to say is, well, what else does that fall under? Healthcare with a healthcare professional that's convenient. So the latest ones we've seen are asthma management, um, acne management, weight loss, smoking cessation. So a lot more of the wellness programs. And I think we all know that it's a lot smarter to spend money on prevention and wellness. And what we're starting to see is for those kinds of things, you can get people into the clinics. There's a great program around teen smoking um, and you can get teens into these clinics. Um, you know, you can get more people in more frequently for some basic care. Um, no clinic wants to be a, or can be a primary care provider. And every clinic's pushing really hard to get everyone into the doctor's office. There's not enough doctor's offices, but... So we'll, C see, we'll see expansion, yes. Cynthia, do you think that weight control is enough, or do you think that you will need to expand the clinics even more to cover other topics? Well, do you know, with, with our weight control program, I mean, we're already seeing patients with comorbid conditions. They're diabetics, and um, so we're doing a lifestyle management that actually is the um, first line of, of treatment in some of these conditions. And one of the things we're finding is we have more men coming in and joining. Um, I mean, in our regular clinics, it's about 90% female, but in our Rite Aid clinics, it's 20% uh, men hmm. in just that short period of time. And um, I think it's about access and because it's, it's non-threatening, you know, and doesn't seem like a big deal to. So I, w I think there'll be more screenings and um, it, more into the preventive care. And, and doctors, is, is, does that add to your level of, you know, sort of concern about these? No, it, actually, there is nothing, if there is one thing you can do to really improve your health is control your weight. Diabetes is gone, high blood pressure is gone, cardiovascular disease is gone, just I can go on and on and on, even there is a benefit in getting less cancer. So preventive and health screening, no, I think employers do. What about asthma care, osteoporosis, uh, that sort of thing? That's a little more complicated. As you go further and further into chronic condition, actually, uh, they might be happy to do Botox, <laughs> biggest margin. <laughs> so so the, remember that there are margins in everyone. When corporations control things, there are margins. You get to look at margins. Uh, but you need a little more comprehensive care as you go deeper and deeper. 
whether it is cardiovascular disease, uh, uh, whether it is asthma with COPD. I mean, there, if you get, there are simpler ways, simpler ones can be controlled, but as you get more and more complicated, you need a, a person who can comprehensively look at and also take you to the right place from there. It could be a surgeon, it could be a hospital for a scan, or it could be uh, anybody, any endocrinologist or anyone else. But the, this, this is what you need. If not, I think you're just, my problem is episodic care alone is a problem because you want a further comprehensive care for every resident. Before we open the floor to, to your questions, I want to ask one final question of Mary-Kate. A couple years ago, there was an estimate that there would be within, I think, two or three years from now, 5,000 retail clinics operating. And if today we're at, you know, at the most generous number, 1,500, is that realistic or, peop, you know, or what has changed that, that, you know, that would lower that number in the, you know, two or three years out? You know, I think we were on track in terms of the expansion and these clinics take a significant investment. You know, in round numbers, $200,000 to open the clinic, sustain it until it breaks even. And, and frankly, we all know we've had a pretty tight credit crunch, and this is not really the time to expand business. Um, so I think that that's had a major impact. Um, I don't think we're going to hit 5,000. I don't know that anyone predicted this economic demise. I, I didn't. Um, I think that what we are seeing, though, the combination, whether, it's, whether we like the fact that corporate America owns these or not, well, but the combination of corporate America and healthcare systems owning these aren't going away, you know, and our need for healthcare and our need for convenience and the consumer's rating of these, they're just not going away. And every profession is pushed and challenged with innovation. You know, we were, we were laughing in the green room because we talked about technology that's changed healthcare. Now, look, my mom... You, know, you asked about, is this the end of the doctor's visit? And I said, yes, it is. No, it's not. But you know, in some ways it is. It is. Because, look, my mom, when she wanted a pregnancy test, okay, she went to the doctor, she did the test, she went back for the result. Okay, there's 40 million tests done in America every year. If we still did it the old way, that'd be 80 million visits. Okay, we got 400 million primary care practices. Now, guess what? You know what? We'd prefer to pee on a stick, sorry to be crass, number one. We don't mind paying for it by ourselves, and we're smart enough to say, we don't want to waste the doctor's time. So as technology comes in and challenges us, whether we get OTC medications, when we get very high-skilled nurse practitioners, which are new and highly supervised by physicians, that gives us new opportunities to deliver healthcare in different ways. So you know, it's interesting, the came, healthcare systems came second in retail clinics. It was really a bunch of small business that said, maybe we could do something differently. So, you know, my hat's off to them for innovation because it challenged us, all of us, to say, what's, what's medical care? What do we expect? What do we want for everybody? You know, what is it we, the consumer, want? And I, I, I like that we're being challenged. And, you know, the California Healthcare Foundation funded the reports because they really believed that this would be innovation for the safety net population. And 38% of people go who have no insurance. And their alternative is an expensive emergency room visit. Most places they wait. They do. And so we've given people an idea. And so that's what I like about it. And so I, I encourage us, like, debate the idea. Give us your thoughts. Give us your comments. What, what do you like? What do you not like? 
All right. <laughs> Hi, uh, my name's Eric Fine, and I'm actually a medical student. And um, I had read about retail clinics in the past as a, quote, uh, disruptive innovation, as in it's transformative. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of the paradigm was that they tend to enter the market kind of at the low end with lower end consumers, because the higher end consumers are initially like, well, I'll, I'll stick with my better product, uh, just like I guess Toyota did uh, way back when. But uh, I read an article in uh, one of the medical journals that I, it is extending, you said 38% to the uh, uninsured, but they're not locating in underserved areas. So I guess my question is, uh, what are the barriers to uh, attaching these retail clinics to, say, uh, FQHC or a um, school-based health center and disrupting from there? Let me Go ahead. You, I think that's a, just a great question. That whole notion of, is it disruptive innovation or not? I, I'm going to put it out there. I agree with you. I think it is because I think it challenged our ideas and our notions. Um, right now, what prevents FQHCs? Well, that's actually a debate happening right now. I, we had meetings all last week. HRSA, which actually regulates what an FQHC, these are clinics for the uninsured, for the poor, what they can actually do, how they work, how they look. And HRSA is actually saying, you know. Say who HRSA is. I'm sorry. Um, health Resources and Services, sorry. It's a division of the federal the, government. <laughs> the, so, the federal, so this is a federal government, this part of the Department of Health, Health and Human Services, and they decide what a community clinic can do. And so they're actually revisiting this and trying to say, you know, maybe this is. So let me ask, answer your other question. Like, I, I think, doctor, you're absolutely right. Many of those clinics targeted, I'm going to call them soccer moms, you know, wealthy, affluent, you know, give me something quick and convenient. And several of them targeted the safety net. So Quick Health is a really neat California example. They're located in Farmacia Remedios, and they um, target the Hispanic population. It's $39. It's all cash. Um, it's streamlined. They have a physician-based model. They have physicians and nurse practitioners. They're actually doing extremely well. Um, and that was, their, that was their target. So, I mean, every retailer has a different consumer, different target. Um, I'm actually particularly excited about this new expansion FQHCs. And, you know, I don't, I've never received a dollar from Walmart, nor would I like to. And I'm neither a fan nor anti-Walmart, but I think it's actually pretty interesting and exciting that we may put these clinics in Walmart because I think this is where, where folks are. And I think that it might provide a really interesting point of access. So it's, your question is unbelievably timely. <laughs> the meetings are happening. Yeah, I, uh, disruptive innovation is uh, one of my favorite subjects when I did the uh, MBA school. <laughs> and I uh, know all about mini mills, know all about all how U.S. Steel got bankrupt. Uh, it's what... It is not is, this is just one area of way you can provide care, mostly episodic care. But you asked about why can't it work in uninsured, especially poor uninsured, under, underinsured area, because the model doesn't go that route. Uh, take underinsured, for example, East, East LA. You have a lot of medical patients. The model doesn't make money on medical patients. That's completely different from F FQHC. FQHC is a cost-based model. That is, federal government reimburses you according to your cost. So what, you, what a doctor at FQHC gets paid about three times as much as you as a prim primary care doc somewhere else practicing. So it doesn't fit into certain models. It, as I said, it won't go away. But the predictions that it would really kill the, the prim primary care practice as we know of, they're all 
It's just, I think it's a lot of uh, smoke and mirrors. But it will take a part of practice. It will give that convenient care. Is it really good for the overall healthcare reform? In my mind, no. Because as I said, repeat, repeat, repeat. My goal is to get every resident a doc with some nurse practitioners that if, if, they, if they, they want to work as a team to provide the comprehensive health care for the, for the whole person rather than this, I go for cold here, I go for flu shot here, I go for this here, just doesn't make sense. Um, Louise McCarthy, and actually I'm with the Community Clinic Association of LA County uh, representing the FQHCs here in LA County. Um, just a, a thought, and I really appreciate the fact that you didn't and you've made it very clear that this is about episodic care and it's you know not about trying to replace the medical home which is a patient centered medical home trying to really you know treat the entire patient um, the the piece though about linkages is what was really of concern to me because you know we just had an event here you know talk about episodic care the ultimate episodic event just happened in LA County we had remote area medical come to town and set up in the forum and present um, an opportunity for folks to get episodic care. And then what happened afterwards? In the community clinics, people started showing up and saying, I had a test, there were results, and I need follow-up. Who are you? And <laughs> what are we going to do? Oh, let's do those tests again. And so a lot of duplication, all the best laid plans when it came to being able to um, get referral mechanisms in place didn't happen. The, the organizers walked away at the end and the clinics were basically left with the, the burden of the uninsured um, all over again. So what happens after the episodic care at a, um, at a minute clinic? How do we make sure that there are actually some sort of policies in place to ensure that there are linkages? And how do we also make sure that if you go and you start serving a need and you start creating a demand, that the market doesn't just tell you to walk away at one point and you know, leave a community hanging? Cynthia, do you want to tackle that first? Well, I, I mean, there are, there are a couple of issues. Um, I, I want to know if you think it would be better for the people who had the screening to never have had that and never have come to you. I mean, it's if something's not perfect, I mean, do you just scrap it because it's got these issues? Or do we say, okay, this is something new, like the, the event that was held in Los Angeles. What that did was, I think, focus attention on a need. You know, yeah, there was some fallout, but was the fallout worse than people who hadn't had an opportunity to have any care? You know? Um, Can I look, so. Okay, I should actually put a bias out there. I sit on the board of an FQHC, so I'm actually really passionate about these two questions. So I just, I'll just put my bias. Thank you. So I was actually extremely annoyed with that whole care episode. So uh, yes, I think it was good. Yes, people should have screenings. But it was, I think it was very frustrating because there weren't any linkages there. What I'm seeing community clinics around the country doing and FQHCs is they're actually reaching out to these clinics saying, you know, if you have patients that match, we, we'd like to see them. And, and send them to us first. You know, and by the way, it's probably going to be better for them because if they qualify, they can actually get care they, they can afford. And so I actually really like that part. And I think that the easily two-thirds of the FQHCs I end up 
speaking to, they adopt the principles. And this is going back, doctor, to what you're saying, that physicians are adopting the principles of retail clinics. And I, I think that's really healthy. I, I mean, I think it's really smart and thoughtful. And so I actually think there may be more benefits in retail clinics um, taking these ideas and streamlining them. As a slight aside, the foundation asked me to put out a five-page um, PowerPoint about lessons learned. I actually said to them, oh, I really don't want to do that. I don't think anybody will read it. It got downloaded more than any other report. You know, and it was, so I actually think that that's part of the benefit, right? It's just thinking about what are the ideas that we can take from this and apply to the clinics? I think the linkages are incredibly important. Um, and I, I hope that this, you know, by the way, the AMA has got nine rules uh, for retail clinics. Um, rule number eight, which we wish they would adopt, is let's have electronic medical records so we can actually have continuity of care. And I really hope this stimulates use of electronic, me uh, electronic medical records and stimulates the debate of why that will improve linkages. So just Yeah, I just wanted to correct uh, Mary Scott one thing. Physicians are not adopting retail clinic practices. Physicians Principal are adopting ideas. the best practices which are there. That's, that's the important one just because uh, it's like chicken and egg story, so don't, you know, it's, it's, physicians' offices are sometimes somewhat slow to adopt. That's, that's because the way the care is some, so fragmented, it becomes very difficult. But as far as I think uh, FQHCs, that is one of our, our big concerns, is that is, you get a screening, and you don't know where to go afterwards if you don't have linkages, and many, many, entities don't have linkages. So that's why we shouldn't uh, put them all together into one basket. There's multiple different baskets. And uh, the basket where a, a, a healthcare system does this, it's not, it's just a part of healthcare system. Or a basket where they create linkages, then it is part of a healthcare system. But if you have this, just go for this, I get this care and then gone, and I'll give you biggest example as a vascular surgeon. There are these ultrasound, wandering ultrasound equipment machines go to supermarkets. They do a scan. Suddenly, a patient comes to me and says, oh, they told me, to the county hospital, because nobody else will see them. Uh, so it says, oh, uh, the, this, the ultrasound they did on my carotid, they say that I need uh, uh, carotid surgery. You're completely lost. What is it about? You have any symptoms? No. Why did you go there? It was $50 I could pay, so I thought I would check up my cardiovascular system. And it's, it, 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 what it created was it unnecessarily put that patient through a lot more workup I do, and most of them I don't operate because they are asymptomatic or they don't have bad disease. So it just adds these kind of problems. So if you link everything together, then I look at that clinic in Walmart. Oh, I hate to say this word. But <laughs> <laughs> That clinic in somewhere has, if you have all those linkages, it's basically, I look at it as a doctor's office. And if it is, then it's not a problem. Okay. A lot of it was already asked, but um, my question is, how do doctors respond? And you're kind of giving me the answer too. Uh, do they give credit to the nurse practitioner at these facilities? Do they openly accept these results? Or is it a waste? Is it a, a, a sort of repeated waste? Once you go in the doctor's office, do they discount everything that's been possibly diagnosed? And then my other question, kind of uh, unrelated, uh, I would see these clinics as excellent for geriatric care um, because there's so much ongoing modern, 
monitoring um, that doesn't happen and, and the older population can't get to the doctor's office, but they do have to go pick up the prescriptions. So if that person did you know, a screen at the walk-in clinic every time they went to go get their heart medicine, it might be spectacular. And what you're mad at with the, um, the traveling you know, heart problem finder that doesn't really necessarily do anything, it is preventative care at the one extreme. And um, I'm sh sure you maybe did operate on some of those people. And so in that sense, it's a matter of opinion of how much preventative care, how much false alarm. But I guess to boil it down, do doctors listen to the clinics? Well, your answer to your first one is that all of the above. Sometimes we don't take them into account. Many times we do repeat everything what you've done. And sometimes we take what you did is the right thing and we follow up. So I can't tell you that either one of them is correct, all three. As far as the, for geriatric population with the medical, multiple medical problems, I, at this time I would not even recommend going to a, a episodic care center which are mostly at at least for now, I know there are some who are trying to get that route with the doctors and nurse practitioners working together, but most of the retail clinics I won't because my suggestion for me, if you are in the age group of Medicare, you will find a doc, unless the Congress decides not to fix the SGR and drop doctors off, and it might happen, by the way. Uh, it's getting that close. So, but otherwise you will, but it's the other group, the group of people who are about from 45 to 65, that is the one with chronic medical problems where they can't get there if they're uninsured. It's a very difficult issue. That's why we need universal care. Cynthia, should the, I mean, geriatric population? Well, I, I think your idea is really interesting because adherence is um, a, a huge problem in the treatment of, of chronic conditions. And anything that reduces the barrier to um, chronic care, you know, whether it's, it can, it can be a physician in that retail location, you know, that's, um, it, it, it's a good thing. And if, I think because we've had these discussions and because there's been so much written about something that's really, in the whole scheme of healthcare, so small, I mean, minuscule, but the fact that it gets so much attention, I think it's tapping into something else, you know? Okay. Hi, my name is Erica Lozano. Um, I work for AARP, but I'm here representing both myself and b having been invited on behalf of my organization. Um, I, I have some questions. I, I heard a lot of talk about consumer-oriented care and driving consumers into particular locations and revenues and things like that. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the importance of patient care and the focus on patients. We heard about affordability and accessibility, which are very critical to us. And I only heard the doctor actually talk about reform. I'd like to know where your organizations um, stand on healthcare reform and whether you guys are doing any active lobbying on that particular issue right now. Oh boy, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, actually, the California Medical Association, that's 35,000 doctors, which I was the president till about five days ago, actually four, three days ago, I'm losing, uh, as soon as it was done, the weight was off me, uh, really has been working so hard for the past whole year. 
We are for universal health care, period. Everything else comes afterwards. What that universal health care is basically is a pluralistic system where consumer or patient has a choice. And don't blow up the current system, but make sure that we do see, number one is serious insurance market reforms. There is no reason for the insurance companies to take away anywhere from 25 to 35 cents on the dollar. And when they spend money for the health care, they call it medical loss ratio. Only somebody from dark side can say what you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> what you're supposed to spend money and call that a loss. That's unfortunate. That's the number one goal. Number two is universal health care. A combination of a public-private system where every resident gets health care. And number three is somehow or other we do need to control costs. No ifs, no buts. If you don't control costs, we as a country cannot survive going from 16% of GDP to 21% of GDP. Then <laughs> our chances of competing with the rest of the world. Now forget about India and China. Compare, competing with Western Europe even becomes more difficult. So, so that's why I think we need, we need healthcare reform. And the doctors of this state, and definitely doctors of the country too, are very actively involved. And I as a person, uh, as I said, I'm a registered Reagan Republican. I spent more time this year with uh, Chairman Waxman, who is way out there on the left. <laughs> Chairman Stark, uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, and Majority Leader Basera, uh, because we have same thing, what, what we agree in common. We both agree, that is that we need health reform where everyone gets covered, that's what we did. Do either one of you two have position on health reform? So I was invited to speak here on behalf of the California Healthcare Foundation. I'm not being paid to be here. Uh, and I'm certainly not a registered Republican, um, just, just to clarify. So um, it's hard for me to really talk on behalf of the California Healthcare Foundation in terms of the reform. I think the reforms are, their involvement's extensive. They are looking at their focus. I mean, they have three focus. The one that I'm so familiar with is they really think about innovation in healthcare delivery. What are the technologies that we can use? Telehealth, medical devices, other technologies. How can we actually get more care for more people that's more cost effective? And so, I don't know, is Sally here? Sorry, I'm not going to try and put you on the spot. She's not here. So I just, you know, they, I'm not really here to speak from there. Um, so I'm not going to give my own views. Okay. I actually, healthcare is local. That's why I sit on my FQHC board. I can tell you we're not lobbying and I don't have anything in this race other than as a, a consumer myself. Um, but I'd say I'd like, I mean, we're hoping for more focus on prevention and the thought that healthcare reform should start with us. We should reform our own health, the way we take care of ourselves too. Yes, uh, there were two points. Uh, there was some concern from the physician's viewpoint on the clinics not being fully integrated, but if they are integrated with a uh, practicing uh, physician so that uh, referrals are appropriately made, wouldn't it be valuable in those categories of disease that benefit from uh, frequent monitoring, diabetes or others, uh, to have that be made more available so for at least those categories of disease that can be frequently monitored and information passed on, it seems like 
that would be a beneficial aspect, not a, a drag on the system, but one that would be a, a gain in it. And secondly, the uh, uh, Lindora question, you spoke about people coming in, and yes, they'll, they'll bring up the point that they were in before and they had a previous disease. Uh, what was being addressed, I think, was modern integrated record keeping, and I couldn't imagine you wouldn't say, oh yes, we saw you last uh, month for this, is that still an issue, and how has that changed? So that it's proactive, not responsive to the patient bringing up record uh, and material, but uh, uh, integrated so that they know what the prescriptions are, they know whether there are any cross uh, recommendations and, and concerns about uh, uh, connections between uh, different prescriptions that might interact. Do you know what, that sounds so obvious, and that puts the, that actual transaction or the interaction between the clinician and the patient, there's, that makes it controversial in terms of the um, scope of practice and um, what's being delivered in that setting, um, because it's supposed to be strictly episodic. And, um, but you're right, we do have the medical record, and if the patient... Across, Across clinics, so that if they visit a different clinic in your system? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, simple answer to you is yes. Yes. I don't have any problem with what you're asking. What you're saying is, it is the patient in the middle, what's best for the patient? not what's good for the clinics, what's good for the pharmaceutical companies or drugstores or corporate partners. It's what's best for the patients or what's good for the doctors. So if it is centered around, that means that there is this comprehensive network who can take care of it. No, it's not an issue. Then I look at it as a site of practice for that health system. That's all it is. They are a site of practice for that small group of primary care docs. They have somebody else, they're not owned by them, but they have somebody else who, who are doing that initial thing and eventually getting them there. So I don't have any uh, problem with that. It's my worry is just uh, episodic care from there, no other connections beyond, and then you got to repeat everything. And sometimes it's just for that flu or flu shot is fine. I don't, I mean, you go to, a, he went to a, uh, to a minute clinic for flu shot, hey, Fine. I mean, I went to my employee, uh, my uh, my employee nurse for flu shot, and it's similar. It's not any different. But that's different than what I'm talking about. Is gosh, what can we do with the healthcare we got here? How can we make it into a, a system where it's around this one entity that's the patient in the middle, rather than an episodic care here, a Botox, in a Botox injection here, or a flu shot here, or something else here, and then your chronic multiple disease management here somewhere. It just doesn't fit completely. Uh, my name is Howard Strom. I'm a physician. I was a medical director for ARCO for 20 years. Uh, following that, I worked for the government, and I helped design the... Um, the programs here in Southern California for one of the government agencies. I usually don't come to these meetings because they're just too frustrating. I, my blood pressure just goes up. Um, I'm here tonight because I wanted to hear what you had to say and I find it very interesting. I'm now doing commercial real estate, finding, <laughs> finding properties for physicians and, and healthcare companies. And um, I have to tell you that it's a sorrow to me that the government and the healthcare system has failed the people. The focus here, just by virtue of the fact we're talking about this, the focus is wrong. The focus should be on people and developing a country that is healthy. That is not what I'm hearing. 
What I see continually is fragmentation in the system, and this is another example of it. We recently worked with a company that CVS bought. One of the impetuses was to find them properties. The properties were supposed to help deliver health care. The motivation is purely and simply retail and to make money and to generate revenue. It is not for wellness. Now, I'm not discounting the fact that the offset here and this is to give people a service, and it certainly has some availability in that direction. But I would challenge you to focus on quality and delivery of health care here, and that is not what these models do. When you talk about, as an example, someone who had chest pain and you walked them to the doctor's office, if you were a physician, you would get sued for that because paramedics probably should have been called in that incident. So when I get done, please tell me who covers the malpractice insurance for your people. Um, additionally, when you go to Washington and look at this issue, in 1982 approximately, I was in D.C. on a committee Ronald Reagan went after public health, veterans affair, and Indian health. Two of the three were protected, and he took down um, the public health service. You have public health services, but they are not part of the federal government now. So that whole branch could have delivered health care at a nominal cost because they had a charter to bill, but they never implemented it. They took it down instead. When you look at the fragmentation that's happening here, and I'll wrap up quickly, in health care, um, I appreciate the fact that we need new models. I appreciate the fact that healthcare and doctors are misunderstood. Please tell me, who's covering your malpractice coverage and what are you doing about healthcare insurance? Uh, because the healthcare insurance companies are practicing healthcare without a license and they're putting the risk on the doctors and they're capping the doctor's income. All right. Uh, I, I can take yours first. I, what you said is all what uh, I've been talking about. I mean, it's, uh, I, that's why my biggest concern is that this episodic fragmentation of care is an issue because in the end we want comprehensive care. When you come to health insurance companies, believe me, nobody is going after the health insurance companies more than your physician organizations. Can we get it done without the help from politicians? Absolutely no. And remember that the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, doesn't, goes after if you have two surgeons in one small town, they talk to each other anything about what they could charge. They could kill those two practices, and they do. But when five insurance companies in California control 80% of the market, FTC doesn't go after them. So one, the number one thing I talked about in healthcare reform is insurance market reform. And number two I mentioned is the universal healthcare. I just stick with that because this is where we need. So your associations are working with, with the politicians on both sides to get it done. And we think this is the best chance for us to get it done because Democrats control all three branches of the government. Cynthia, I want to give you kind of the final word here. Um, you can address this question, but also, how do you ensure quality, you know, in what you provide? How do you ensure that, that you know, ultimately, are you measuring yourself? Are you looking at the quality? You know, what are you doing in that regard? Oh, well, okay, quality is, I mean, that's of ultimate priority. And just like any medical practice, we have peer review, we have 
chart review. I mean, there are regulations with nurse practitioners that uh, for with physician oversight, and um, so we, yes, we have. Well, and if you're in a retail context, I mean, that's a lot of exposure. I mean, more so than most like regular doctor's offices. Because it's so public, and there's so much, you know, the spotlights on this area right now. And, do you know, I, want, I do want to address something. You're right. I needed to be a little more careful with my language. You mentioned malpractice, and that's one of the costs of doing business in California, or costs. And uh, malpractice insurance is high. Um, one of the uh, best, well, insurance against uh, suits is to have a really good relationship with that patient and to meet the needs of a patient. So in the case of the person with chest pains, um, 911 was called, but the urgent care was right next door. And the practitioner thought that it was more important to get the person um, to a physician quickly without regard to, oh my gosh, this is a legal issue. It was very patient care um, oriented. <laughs>